Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show... QP is selling dirty classrooms that haven't been cleaned. Your kids are working in squalor. But is any of it true? We talked to the Education Minister, Stephen Lecce. Canada has a new ambassador to China. Will that help? And according to a new report from the Angus Reid Institute, Canadians want to see action on climate change, but they also want to see growth in the oil and gas industry. Are politicians listening? It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. QP earlier this week at a press conference said that due to the cuts, uh, custodians won't be, uh, won't be cleaning as often. Um, we're going to have Stephen Lecce, the Minister of Education, on, but we also wanted to get Alex Johnstone on, trustee. Hamilton Wentworth District School Board and with us now. Alex, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. And thank you for joining us today after the scheduling mix-up yesterday. We greatly appreciate that. Good afternoon, Scott. So uh, are we heading for, uh, well, I guess the first thing, are the classrooms clean? Are they going to uh, continue to be clean? Are we heading for a situation where, uh, you know, touch points like doorknobs and whatever won't get cleaned on a regular basis? We're hearing of floors not being swept or cleaned or, or, or carpets vacuumed or such. Uh, what are you hearing from, from where you're sitting and, and are the classrooms clean? You know, Scott, I think a a wonderful example of all the great work that's being done across the system is if you go on to our HWDSB uh, Twitter site or any of our schools who've been tweeting out last week as schools were preparing and then this week uh, as well, all of the pictures of all of the schools. And so many of our principals had tweeted out thanks to um, to our custodian staff noticing how wonderful and warm and welcoming our schools looked for the first week of school. Um, They were sparkling. So I think that, you know, provincially it is a normal process to move into a strike vote. Um, That is, that's a a standard um, step in the negotiations process. Unions uh, have a strike vote, and it's about having that item in their back pocket to be able to turn around to their employer at any time and say, hey, we don't uh, necessarily like the terms that you're negotiating. Just so you know, we always have that uh, uh, possibility of going into a strike. But at this point, um, that has we're not in a position to, to go into a strike. Um, and at this point, it is a standard process. And um, there was six trustees that actually attended the, the Labor Day Parade and here in Hamilton on Monday. And uh, the head of our uh, of our caretaking union came up to me and said, just so you know, we are going in, uh, going to be holding a strike vote. Um, and that's a standard process, which I was already aware of, but appreciated uh, the heads up from them. Are you worried that the schools will be on some sort of reduced uh, cleaning schedule where, you know, I mean, again, once parents start hearing that they're, you know, the, st- the, the desks aren't going to be wiped or the doorknobs aren't going to be wiped or the computer key or keyboards or what have you. I mean, obviously that you, you can understand how that starts to raise alarm. Uh, are, are you concerned that kids are going to school and are will be going to school and that could they could see a reduced uh, custodial uh, schedule of some sort, maybe to do? or not to do with a a strike vote, but just even moving forward? So locally, we have not received that communication uh, from our local. Locally, um, our custodian staff continue to do um, their job, and they they do it uh, extremely well. 
Um, and, you know, as, as stated over the last couple of weeks, as we prepared for the first day of school and then this week, we've had all kinds of pictures out there uh, showcasing our beautiful schools and our uh, the wonderful work that our staff has been doing in terms of a concern. If, if circumstances change, our commitment to parents is we will absolutely be communicating to them through uh, the media like yourself, but also directly through on our school websites and uh, through our school newsletters. At this point, though, we have not received that communication. And like I said, this is a standard part in the negotiation process. Uh, and so uh, on that process, have you heard anything from union leaders, Alex, or, uh, or government officials, the education minister, anything on how any of this is going or any, of the, any timeline for any of these strike votes? Yeah, so um, um, the contracts came to an end. They expired August 31st. Um, and my understanding, provincially right now, um, they continue to have regular meetings. They continue to um, have meetings scheduled. And that's a, a very positive sign uh, when it comes to negotiations. They do have a conciliator um uh, requested and um, that is also good news this is a normal part of the negotiation process and at this point um, timelines are, are following as they normally do every uh, few years when our contracts come up for for negotiation alex johnstone's been with us trustee hamilton Wentworth district school board alex thanks so much for the time much appreciated Thank you. Uh, let's bring in Stephen Lecce. He is the education minister. He is with us now for some clarity. Stephen, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. You're very welcome. Thanks so much for having me on today. Uh, can you comment a little bit on the contract negotiations that are going on, and specifically in regard to cleanliness of schools? Uh, there was people on from QP, uh, spokespeople from QP the other day, talking about how the new normal is. Areas that were only cleaned uh, once cleaned daily uh, are now only being cleaned once a week. Touch points like doorknobs and stuff. like, And they just painted this picture that our kids were going to school in squalor. Is there any way you can clarify this? And is this the Ontario we're heading for with Doug Ford? Uh, well, first off, I will say to you, it's good to be back on the show. Uh, I'm very excited. The first week of school has gone so far so good. Um, and I would just strongly um, dispute the assertion. What, what has changed under our government versus the former Liberal government is we've increased the investment in the school uh, maintenance by over $20 million. Uh, school operating fund is up by $20 million net new dollars to ensure the safety and cleanliness of class. There are regulations that ensure that the safety uh, and cleanliness must may be maintained by law. And so when I heard that, you know, I guess I, I, I shouldn't be horribly surprised to hear some of the continued hyperbolic rhetoric that has come out from some groups to stir up concern. I, I think what I don't like is when, uh, you know, when we're, when we're putting out information there that really creates anxiety and angst for parents. You know, there's a cyclical reality out there. Every three, four years, contract negotiations come. We're told about certain sort of uh, these sort of draconian scenarios, uh, none of which manifested in September. Remember, we were told there'd be mass teacher layoffs. We were told there was going to be uh, no EA supports for children with autism. We were told there'd be busing cuts. We were told there's going to be uh, mass um, classes would rise. And yet, effectively, we've maintained the same levels as last year. 
when it comes to all those things. And none of that has manifested, which only underscores the fact that, that we need to make sure the facts actually get out there for parents. I don't like that they have that angst. And so what I can tell you is it's, it's just simply not the case. We've increased investments. And, you know, what QP didn't mention is that many of the documents they read came from a memo written by the former Liberal government. They left that out, which is hmm. rather regrettable, meaning that the change they announced didn't happen under our government. It happened under a predecessor, or it happened under another government before we were elected. Uh, and so I just think facts have to get out there, and I think we have to scrutinize them greater, because parents of the province should know three things. One, we've increased investment in education to the highest levels ever, ever in the province's history. Two, for children with special education, uh, with exceptionalities, kids I care about deeply, we've increased their investments to the highest levels, we've doubled the mental health portfolio, and we're going to be doing more. And three, later today, I'll be making an important announcement supporting French language education to make sure that for the hundred plus thousand kids in Ontario that depend on French language education, that we're going to continue to support them uh, and ensure that they have abilities to learn in both English and French. Uh, Stephen, are you concerned, is your government concerned that this is going to come to a head uh, in October just before the federal election so the federal Liberals can uh, compare Doug Ford to Andrew Scheer and use that to, to woo voters in Ontario? I hope that's not part of the calculus. I, I hope our kids is the only consideration that you know all parties are looking at. I mean, when I hear of some saying that that would, it, that would be part of the calculation for unions or whatever, I just, I don't want to believe that. I hope that's not the case. I really hope the only thing they're talking about, the one thing I'm talking about, is keeping our kids in the class and helping them get a good, positive, inclusive, modern-focused education that leads them to good-paying jobs. In the absence of that being the focus, I think we feel the kids we serve. And I'm going to continue to champion getting a deal at the table in good faith. I still think we can get one, notwithstanding some of the... How are those, negoti- how are those negotiations going, Stephen? Well, look, I mean, we're obviously negotiating right across the board. I think they are, you know, there's, as they always will be, there's an ebb and flow negotiations. But, you know, I think we can get a deal. And I think the, the mission, the, the message I've shared with my union leaders is in good faith to sit down with them, to listen, and to, um, and to materially uh, advance uh, some of the shared priorities we have. I'm doing everything I can, uh, I think, in good faith to do that. I met with them all in person. I called them on the first day. We're listening aggressively to the priorities of our educators and our parents. And I think we're going to land in a good place. But I want to be cautiously optimistic and focused on getting a deal at the table. Stephen Lecce has been with us, Minister of Education. Thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right. Uh, interesting. We were talking about situation, uh, the situation in Hong Kong earlier uh, this week. I believe it was yesterday. Uh, Carrie Lam there, uh, uh, I guess, China, liaison between China, leader of Hong Kong, uh, t- commenting ab- about dropping a law there, uh, which started all the protests in Hong Kong. Uh, that would see those charged in Hong Kong tried and, and put through the ju- judiciary system of China, which we just have to ask the two Michaels when we see them next what that is like. 
Uh, uh, of course, protests in Hong Kong have, have continued uh, since then. And uh, now uh, Carrie Lam announcing that that bill not only uh, has been suspended, but is completely off the table in hopes that things ca- uh, calm down a bit in Hong Kong. Obviously, the world is watching what is going on, as well as uh, the U.S.-China uh, trade deal that's going on, the whole issue with the Huawei CFO and her detainment in Canada, waiting extradition and such. So obviously relations between Canada and China have 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 been quite tense, to say the least. Uh, obviously, way back when, John McCallum, former ambassador to China, was fired by Justin Trudeau for his off-the-cuff comments on a couple of occasions that just didn't seem to help uh, help the discussions moving forward. Uh, now, uh, China urges uh, a new Canadian envoy to release the Huawei executive detained in Vancouver. Uh, China has urged Canada to reflect on its mistakes and immediately release the Huawei executive detained in Vancouver. A Chinese foreign, uh, foreign ministry spokesperson made the comments Thursday following the appointment of a new Canadian ambassador to China. Uh, hopes that uh, the envoy, Dominique Barton, will play an active role in improving ties, which he said are facing serious difficulties. Relations between China and Canada were severely damaged, obviously, when the Huawei CFO uh, was detained, uh, arrested at Vancouver's uh, airport on December at the request of the Chinese, or sorry, the United States. Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau fired the previous ambassador and... Um, after he said it would be great if the U.S. dropped the extradition request for the Huawei CFO, which, of course, uh, has not happened. And at the end of the day, uh, Canada is under an obligation, as it is with all of its allies, uh, that there, if an extradition warrant is, is sought out, uh, we, we, we comply. Uh, that's just the way it is. Uh, so how does this change things moving forward in regard to Canadian relations with China? Let's bring in Phil Calvert. He's a senior fellow with the China Institute at the University of Alberta, fellow at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute, and with us now. Thank you so much for the time, Phil. Much appreciated. Hi, Scott. Nice to talk to you. So I guess it's a positive first step that now we have a new envoy and there, there's some sort of uh, open communication. What, what's the advantages of the steps that have been taken this week? Well, the advantage of having an ambassador is that you can now, uh, you know, engage at very serious, uh, uh, very senior levels on these serious issues. Uh, the, the the person who's been in charge of the embassy uh, up till now, while there's been no ambassador, is uh, is a very experienced and a really great uh, a diplomat, but he's not an ambassador. And to be able to connect at very senior levels, especially someone like Dominic Barton, who has a lot of experience in China and knows uh, some of the power brokers in the system. Uh, this is an advantage to to be able to advance Canada's interests. That said, I mean, uh, one person I don't think is going to be able to change the the situation we have uh, with respect to China. It's very complicated and very difficult, and positions are pretty entrenched. Uh, why not earlier? Why did this process take so long? Is it a case of finding the right person? Is it a case of letting tensions sort of uh, die down for a bit? McCallum was let go quite a while ago. Yeah, uh, I, I, that's a good question. I think it, it, it would uh, have been better to have moved more quickly on finding uh, a, a replacement for, for, for uh, John McCallum. It seems to me that possibly the government was looking uh, to get back to Dominic Barton, who they had fla- uh, flagged earlier as a possible uh, 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 ambassador to China before they appointed John McCallum. Um, but, uh, you know, I think they've been 
have taken a long time to, to, to reach this, this point and to, to make this appointment. One of the challenges of this now, though, is um, he's, it's a political appointment, um, and political appointments are a little more vulnerable in changes of government. So um, if the election doesn't go the way, you know, the, way uh, you know, the liberals hope, we could possibly see the the, 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 uh, the possibility of him not lasting very long if, for example, the conservatives take power and they want to have someone on the uh, either more neutral or someone who's more linked to the conservative party. So the timing is a little bit uh, is 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 a little bit uh, uh, um, you know questionable, but it's good to have someone in the senior position there now. So questionable because uh, of the looming election. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So better to have someone in place when you're heading into an election, I'm guessing, is your point? Yeah, well, better. To, I, I, you, it might have been better to wait until the election was done and mm. uh, appoint him. Then they have waited a long time. But, you know, it still is a good step uh, to at least have someone in, a, you know, uh, an ambassador in place as soon as possible. And what about this person, Dominic Barton? Your thoughts on, on he as a candidate for this? Well, you know, if you're going to make a political appointment, then Dominic Barton is a good choice. He has uh, a high, uh, a lot of, you know, he has experience in China. He's connected to the uh, the, the Liberals uh, quite well. He's on the chairs of financial advisory committee to uh, to Finance Minister Morneau, and uh, he's known to be a very talented uh, person and a you know uh, a good business person. Um, and, uh, if you're going to make a political appointment, I guess the question is is whether a political appointment at this point was a good idea or whether they would have wanted to go with uh, someone with uh, extensive diplomatic experience and diplomatic experience in China uh, to do this instead. Because, you know, he, uh, Dominic Barton's experience is with business, and while he knows that like, commercial power players and while trade with China is very important, we're in a very difficult time bilaterally with China, and it might... Uh, so that's one issue is someone with the kind of diplomatic skills to navigate some of these difficult times. Secondly, it, it, it sends a, you know, a kind of a, a discouraging, discouraging message to uh, the, uh, the Foreign Service, Canadian Foreign Service, which has a lot of talented uh, China expertise, you know, operating in it right now. Um, that this, you know, if you're going to start making political appointments to, the, to Beijing, the ambassador in Beijing, this... It, does this take that career goal off the table? And mm. does that, uh, how does that encourage people to continue uh, developing ex- expertise in, on China within the foreign ministry? How is China viewing uh, this? Uh, China has urged Canada to, quote, reflect on its mistakes. Uh, yeah. Will he reflect on Canada's mistakes? How will, they, how will they view him when they realize the position is still the same? Well, there's two things. I think one is that this idea that Canada should reflect on its mistakes is just a very typical Chinese uh, response, consistent with what they've been saying, really since uh, Meng Wanzhou was uh, was detained and the two Michaels were were, were arrested. Um, The the people who've turned the relationship southward is in Canada. The people who've had the, the the relationship is in a bad place right now not because of something Canada has done, but because of China's reaction mm-hmm. to it. And so it's China that actually should be reflecting on what it's done and whether this is good for not only the bilateral relationship, but China's image around the world, which is suffering a lot right now. If you look at uh, what's been happening with other, other uh, n- nationals of other countries who've been detained, uh, like Australia, for example, 
and also what's happening, uh, the, the threat that Hong Kong poses, um, China's image isn't that great right now. So That was my next you know, point. How much does what's happening in Hong Kong right now um, make China pause when it comes to this scenario? Um, I, I'm not sure that that what's happening in Hong Kong is is uh, has an impact on the on, on China's approach to the you know to Canadian relationship. But though. as you but, said, obviously uh, the percep- the world perception of China has changed quite a bit in the yeah. last six months or so. Well, I think it's I think it's relations with the United States that is that they should be concerned about in the sense that um, you know China's. China's uh, relations with the United States are in a, a low point as well, and um, they're not really doing much to try to, uh, um, you know, gather support from other uh, sort of uh, some of the U.S. allies or other like you know countries that are like-minded with the United States and Canada or tra- traditionally have been. So they're losing a lot, a lot of that kind of support. The EU has uh, is very wary about China now, and in and they're. You know, leaning more and more towards strengthening ties with Russia uh, and other similar countries. So th- this looks to me why I find this a bit worrying is because you're you're seeing a more kind of global polarization as a result of what's happening between China and the United States. Uh, that being said, uh, China-U.S. relations, as you mentioned, trade uh, uh, difficulties, tariffs, what have you. Um, was it time that China was put in its place? Talk about the U.S. handling of this. You know, um, I, I think the United States has, uh, however you think of some of the, their approach to China and this kind of use of tariffs and the uh, Lack you know, of uh, diplomacy? <laughs> well, well, yeah, well, John, Donald Trump yeah, exactly. claims that somehow China is paying tariffs, you know, paying the tariffs on these things that are coming into the United States, all these kind of misinformation that's going on. Whatever you think about that, there were serious uh, issues uh, with uh, China's trade regime, and the issues related to especially intellectual property and forced transfer of technology are issues that I think were important to a lot of players, uh, a lot of people doing trade with China. I guess the unfortunate thing is that um, is that the United States, uh, you know, and the Trump administration sort of pushed ahead with this in a very kind of clumsy way. And when you could have had, I think, uh, kind of a coalition of the willing, if you will, a, a number of countries for whom trade with China is important, who are equally concerned about these. And if you had a, a collective group of uh, of uh, of countries uh, like Canada, uh, uh, U.S., Canada, EU, Australia, China, or Australia, Japan, for example, all of whom are very concerned about this this behavior, it might have been a much better way to force change with China without it becoming a bilateral issue that uh, whose results will have an impact economically on all other players. At one time, China, uh, you know, last several decades, China's the golden goose, uh, bowing to China, uh, trying to win their trust, which seems odd when you think it's, you know, a, a, a country that's ruled by the Communist Party of China. Uh, but once viewed as the, you know, the land of opportunity. What is the new look for China? How is China, how is the world viewing China now? I think the, the world is starting to see, and I think this is probably a healthy thing, uh, the, the difficulties of doing business in China as well. There, there are opportunities there, but it's a very tough place to do business. 
it is uh, there are uh, you know doing business with a country that doesn't have essentially the rule of law, um, and uh, and it has a growing and improving body of commercial law, but it's still not there means that this is a tough place. And I think we've what has happened, what was happening, is people were sort of seduced by the numbers and seduced by the possibility of this huge market. Uh, rather than looking at, you know, objectively at their own capacity and capacity to sustain, uh, you know, uh, interest, sustain activity in China without getting much out of it. So I think perhaps what is happening is a healthy recal- recalibration uh, about uh diversifying your trade. You know, we, the, when Canada talks about diversification, when the Liberal government has talked about diversification, it's been about diversification away from the United States. Um, there's a whole uh, issue there about uh, what is easiest, and the private sector are the ones who diversify, it's not government. But but um, really, I think it's also in, another aspect of this is diversifying uh, trade away from uh, uh, China. To other parts of Asia where there are lots of opportunities and for a country like Canada which is driven by SMEs um, other countries in the region may provide more opportunities and, and a, an easier business environment including a place like Taiwan which you know does have the rule of law and which is uh, you know, a better place for doing business. Have we become or are we too interwoven economically already with a country that does not have rule of law? You know, uh, the bulk of our trade still is with the United States. And then if you look at uh, Canada as a country, is China as a country is Canada's second largest trading partner. Uh, but, you know, in terms of uh, trade regimes, the EU follows the United States in terms of the entire, uh, you know, the, the entire uh, 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 group of countries there. I don't, I think it's important to us. It's important for certain sectors uh, and it's, uh, uh, and we have developed perhaps certain uh, dependence on these markets, but I don't think we're so. It's not the kind of tight connection, tight ever interlinkages uh, that we have with uh, the United States. Uh, certain sectors, as I said, auto parts manufacturing, for example, agricultural sectors are are uh, are, are the linkages are very strong. Um, but also, you know, these are these are aimed at. Uh, uh, these are profitable for China as well for the China investment. Or that something like uh, uh, investment in auto parts it is it serves a China market. It serves a global market uh, from China. So that is useful for the Chinese government. So you know, it's not a question of, of delinking completely. It's a question of of, of more diversity within Asia and and, and looking at other markets uh, more seriously. Um. How how many have said that this is China's century? You know, U.S. last century, the the U.K. before that. Uh, this is is China's century. Is, is this a walk in the park for them? Uh, is this a slam dunk, or do they have internal issues uh, within their own regime uh, that could cripple this? For example, their handling of Hong Kong. Um, China has a lot of challenges. They have financial challenges. Uh, the financial system, uh, you know, there's a lot of, uh, of issues with uh, uh, companies and banks that are overextended, have lousy credit. Uh, they are uh, also facing uh, a demographic challenge. There, there is, uh, even before the China-U.S. Uh, trade dispute, uh, which has had an economic impact, predictions were looking at a gradual decline in economic uh, growth figures in China because of this aging population. 
and, and this need for China to transform itself from this export-focused economy to a domestically-focused economy, that's a difficult transition to make, but it means slower economic growth. Uh, and uh, so China was, is facing, has been facing that. Uh, I, I think China is, is, um, is much less sure of itself internationally than, than it appears. Uh, and some of the reactions they have on this kind of uh, strong, uh, sometimes arrogance, uh, reflects a sort of brittleness in their international uh, approach to international relations. They, there is a certain siege mentality uh, in China. Uh, that, and, and I think um, Xi Jinping yesterday made a speech about this ongoing struggle. Uh, you know, this is a struggle to regain to, for China to be uh, reaching its appropriate level on the world stage. This is not, they don't see it as a walk in the park. They mm-hmm. see it as a a struggle they're going to go through to regain what they see as regaining their international status they deserve. Uh, trading agri-product is one thing. What about 5G networks? Where will the whole Huawei debate go? Uh, that's, a, that's a good question. You know, what, what, uh, um, what, what I think the government's approach to Huawei should be, or perhaps should have been, uh, and, and now the government is saying they'll make a decision after the election on this. Frankly, I think uh, 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 the two micro situation is really re- reflects uh, is 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 a Huawei issue. It was done after Meng Wanzhou was uh, was detained. It's clearly stimulated by the, the situation with Huawei. Uh, you know, a, a, a good sort of message from Canada early on could have been that you know until until those the two Michaels are released, we're not even looking at Huawei's uh, application. You know, we're, we're not even going to to, to uh, consider it mm-hmm. and to put more pressure on Huawei, to put pressure on the Chinese government to to release them. Um, that said, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the delay in making decisions about Huawei uh, seems to me to be an indication that the government's very concerned about it, concerned about relations, their security relations with the United States and with uh, other players. So the, the, the Five Eyes Network, as they call it, has been... Um, a little bit mixed on their on their response to Huawei. Uh, I suspect that Canada, you know, is is very concerned about about what will happen if they uh, approve uh, Huawei's five G application. And obviously, it's, and it's obviously, an application that could have been used much more. Uh, they could have used it with much more leverage earlier on. Uh, that being said, will an, will any of this be resolved until the, the CFO extradition hearing is resolved? Either way. I think this is a long, this is going to be out there for a long time. Right. Phil Calvert, sorry, go ahead. As you remember uh, earlier, there was a a case uh, in China-China relations many years ago with this uh, Hui Chanxing, who we wanted to extradite, uh, who China wanted to have extradited, sorry, to to, uh, back to China um, uh, in this case. Um, And that went on for years. It was an irritant for years. This is much more serious, and China's reaction has been much more serious. And I think it's going to it's going to hang on for it's going to be a, a problem for a, for a while. Whoever is in in charge of the embassy in Beijing, Phil Calvert has been with us, senior fellow with the China Institute at the University of Alberta, fellow at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute. Phil, uh, Phil, thank you so much for the time. Fascinating discussion. Much appreciated. Thanks very much. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, according to a report from Angus Reid, uh, Angus Reid Institute, Canadians are indicating that they want to see climate action, but they also want to see growth in the oil and gas industry from the next uh, 
uh, from the next government, whoever that might be. Uh, you know, politics have become a land of extremes. It seems either you're way over there or you're way over there, and you're either on one side or the other. Except when it comes to climate change versus the oil and gas industry, that's not necessarily how Canadians feel. They feel there's room for both. But are politicians listening? Uh, let's bring in Dave Korzynski, Angus Reed Institute. He is with us now. Dave, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. No problem, Scott. Thanks for having me. So have I accurately kind of described, de- decode what your information has uh, said in regard to, the, and is it the oil and gas industry versus climate change? Yeah, it was one of these things where, you know, this is going to be a really important conversation during the election. So we wanted to find out, we asked a a number of questions about uh, both climate action and oil and gas development and and some some questions about where we should go with natural resources and potentially uh, investing in renewable resources. That release is forthcoming. But this first one, we focused on the climate change aspect of it and just how it relates to uh, oil and gas development in terms of priority. And I thought it, w- it was really interesting that there's a couple of ways that, that we kind of dug into this. And the first is just we asked people, uh, you know, considering the next, the next federal government, regardless of who it is, let's say we, we don't care who wins, how much uh, of, a, of a priority should they give to each of these issues? And we actually rotated the questions just to make sure that everybody saw um, one issue before the other at, at the same level. And uh, you find that about 7 in 10 Canadians say that uh, climate change action on that issue should be a top, a top priority for the next government, which leaves about 3 in 10 who say that it's a lower priority or not a priority. And the same goes for uh, oil and gas development, which we got 6 in 10, so it's slightly less, um, but still considerable numbers. And, you know, half, at least half of all male age groups and um, only women under the age of 35 saying that it should be a lower priority. So 6 in 10 saying oil and gas should be uh, a top priority, and, and 7 in 10 saying that climate change should be a top priority. So, you know, a, a difficult uh, kind of responses to reconcile. But I think also something that Justin Trudeau has been trying to sell Canadians on uh, since the beginning of his government, saying that they were going to make, you know, the right investments in oil and gas, and that would help to lead the transition uh, to renewable energy. So maybe there's something there that uh, that they can, can work off of, and, and maybe that argument uh, is something that Canadians are amenable to, because they really do seem to, to value those those industries. So what does it tell you? I mean, uh, are, are we hearing too much of the extreme sides of this issue and not enough of the common ground? Uh, uh, with the, the 7 out of 10 and the 6 out of 10, how much of them share a common denominator here? Yeah, you know, what's interesting, too, is when you ask about uh, climate change, uh, you get 4 in 10 conservatives saying that that should be among the top the top few priorities for the next government, regardless of who that government is. So there's almost half of people who say they're going to vote for the conservatives uh, in this survey who say that they actually want the the government to pay attention to that. So I think that's significant because the the conservative voice on this issue is always assumed to be uh, just one that doesn't want any action and, and wants to just you know, burn as much oil as possible, but I don't think that's necessarily the case. The, certainly the, they are less supportive of action or want to do it in a different way, but it's still something that's on their mind. And, you know, as you're talking about the fact that these, these groups overlap, 
we asked if you if you had to focus on one of those things. So, what do you think is the biggest priority over the next decade? Because that puts it past one government. That puts right. it to you know two two or three governments from now. Fifty-two uh, percent say climate change efforts, and thirty-four say oil and gas. So, considerable groups, but. When you drill down to the next level and say, okay, you chose oil and gas, well, what do you think should be done about climate change? Uh, only a quarter of, the, of that group who, who want to focus on oil and gas say that they don't want to focus on climate change at all. The other three quarters say that we need to still be working in this area, we need to be making investments, but it's just not their top priority. So I think it's, it's not as black and white of an issue. There's, there's very few people who want to ignore each issue in Canada. It's just that you know, they, they might have a, a priority that they consider more important. And a lot of that is just based on uh, the economic issues there or the regional issues. And you see that the differences of opinion are you surprised? Uh, all over the country. Are you surprised at these results uh, at all, Dave? I mean, because the message has sort of been the world's coming to an end and only the politicians can save us. Yeah, you know, it was a little bit surprising. And I think it was a, it was a nice addition by Mr. Angus Reid himself when we were designing the survey. To, to take that extra step and say, okay, well, if you choose one, then how do you feel about the other one? Because oftentimes we don't ask people, we just say, okay, well, you know, people in Alberta want more investment in oil and gas. But that makes sense because the, the economy is so dependent on that. But it's not to say that they want uh, only oil and gas development. They, they say we can be working on things in parallel. But well, it's so like nobody's, dis- nobody's discussed how we're going to get there. It's like we're here and we have to get there, but it, it, nobody seems to come up with a, a viable plan yeah. to get from one point to another. Yeah, and I think, you know, the NDP, the previous government, took some steps in terms of investing in renewable energy and actually transitioning some people who are working in the oil patch to to, you know, be engineering in a different area or working in a different area with, with either solar power or wind power. Um, so I think there are certain investments that can be made there, and Canadians, certainly, that's something that they're open to. There's, there's a finding in, in the next release that says, you know, more than two-thirds of Canadians think that renewable energy is, is a, a huge opportunity for Canada and something that we should probably be paying more attention to. Um, but, yeah, I don't know if... if uh, any of the the candidates, which Canadians are not particularly fond of any of them at this point, have really laid out the the true vision for what that would look like. You hear Trudeau often saying that you know we're gonna we want to build Trans Mountain because it's going to allow us to invest in other energy projects. But uh, I think you have to do a lot of reading to figure out what those are, and I don't think a lot of Canadians are going to the government website to to dig through all of that. So I think communication in the campaign from everybody. Uh, because this is such a an open election in terms of the movement between the NDP and the Greens and the Liberals and, and the Conservatives trying to to expand their base beyond the kind of 36 to 38 percent, I think there's a big communication gap and something that needs to be addressed once the writ is dropped, which I guess is going to happen on Sunday or Monday. Do activists or political parties, uh, politicians, do they see this issue as a both or either or issue uh, or an either or? I mean, do, do they do they do they see the compromise here? Do they see where most Canadians are sitting or are, are sitting on this issue? Yeah, I think. Uh, or are we spending too much time defending the party brand and not what's right for Canadians? Yeah, I think that a lot of times, especially with the way that. Uh, you know, social media has kind of infiltrated the, the political discussion. It oftentimes is too much of a uh, one or the other. Um, you know, we we asked this question of uh, whether or not the the federal government has done enough on the pipeline issue, and you've got this 
this huge divide between people. You've got four in ten who say they've been, they haven't done enough and they've got to push through more pipelines, and then you've got almost an equal number who say that they're pushing too hard, and it's basically only liberal supporters who say that they've found the right balance. And I thought that was interesting because the government has rejected multiple pipelines, and then they've purchased this one, which, you know, a lot of people just aren't sold that they're going to ever get Trans Mountain built. But they arguably have been trying to find a balance, but that's not really what, what we've been discussing. We've just been talking about whether or not the government should have a pipeline, and if they, if they build a pipeline, does that mean they're environmental sellouts? Or does it mean that they're doing something that is, you know, potentially savvy in, in a political mechanism? So I think there's a lot of um, there's a lot of polarization on both sides, and I think potentially you know having these discussions and, and looking at how the views kind of overlap is is valuable for people just to kind of recenter themselves as we go into the campaign and say you know these things aren't necessarily black and white. Um, there are a lot of people in Canada that really do envir- uh, value environmental protection, but also rely on some of the economic growth that's generated by the oil and gas industry. And they want they want to to transition. If we have to move away from that, they want to do that in the in the way that preserves you know the the best economic situation for people who rely on those things. Um, and I think that's that's something that people are are sympathetic of. So if we get more of that conversation going forward, I think we are potentially in a better place uh, as we go into the election because it it has the potential to kind of get a little bit nasty just the way does this going does, the attacks does this say that we're creating too much hysteria over climate change and again not to re- not to reduce its importance by any means but are we creating too much hysteria and i think this is one of the issues that's happened with the liberals they've been they've been spending so much time uh and, and Catherine mckenna and such painting a picture of doom and gloom that all of a sudden when you try to compromise and play the middle mm-hmm. ground and do something like a pipeline everybody's hair catches fire I mean, it, it, you can't play both sides of the extreme, it seems. And, and, and Yeah, I, I think that's one of the things that helps um, politically, to, because they're looking to create opposition between the two parties and, and a clear brand between themselves and the conservatives, that to have it be uh, more of uh, uh, an us-versus-them issue um, is certainly beneficial politically. Um, but I'm not sure how much of that's entirely necessary when you look at the numbers here because you know we've got uh we asked this question of whether or not um you think that climate change is is uh, is happening is is an issue and there aren't very many canadians who don't think it's an issue so everybody's really on the same page i right. mean it's 10% uh, across the country it's, it's just how to ha- it's, in alberta it seems that everybody agrees uh, or is on the same page about climate change it's just they're they're in disagreement on how to deal with it yeah, exactly. And it's it's not something where I think you need to paint people as one thing or the other. I think that exactly. the discussion is more about is more about solutions and who's offering the best plan that will that will satisfy conditions that Canadians are kind of setting forth, which is, you know, we we don't want to just have have widespread job losses. I don't think anybody politically is calling for that, but that's kind of what you hear from one side is that, oh, well they they don't want us to be able to drive cars and the other side is saying that you know, the world is going to end. So yeah, exactly. It's, it's, either you're a fossil tricky. fuel, yeah, either you're a tree hugger or a fossil fuel burning pig. There's no happy medium here. Yeah, and I think that, you know, Canadians, when you just break it down, are really, we're, everyone's on the same page. It's just the policies that are, are a little bit divisive. I found it interesting, too, that, you know, we've got uh, almost, you know, about 8 in 10 Canadians say that we should be meeting the, the Paris Climate Accord in 2030, um, with you know 
half of half of that group saying that we've really got to amp up efforts if we're going to get there. Um, but there's so much division on the policies, including carbon pricing or uh, you know switching off of, of fossil fuels. That everybody kind of agrees that we have to get there and that that's a good thing to be striving for. But they're not necessarily certain you know who's best to deliver on this issue and and what needs to be done. So I think we have a lot of uh, a lot we- of questions to answer at this point. Do but we want to think, think... The starting point is that it's a problem, and, and Canadians are, are basically in agreement that we should do something. Do we want to think that we're doing something, even though it's not really doing anything at all? I mean, you think of the carbon tax. People say, well, you know, I don't mind spending an extra four cents a liter on uh, gas, you know, as long as we're uh, doing something for the environment. And then you find out, well, none of this really is going to help the environment. It's a nah, 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 nah. Um, do we like to think that we're doing something, even though we may not be? Is it time yeah, for clarity? That, is it time to face the truth? Yeah, I, th- I think that, you know, there's a lot of people who, um, it, we've seen this even just with that, the carbon tax specifically. Support for it was so much higher before it was an actual policy. Uh, people loved the <laughs> idea. And then when, when it was brought in, the support went from 6 and 10 down to, you know, 44%. And it's, it's back up to, to about half now that the, the government has, created the rebate system for the provinces that, that aren't participating. Um, but it's still a, certainly a, sor- a source of division. And, you know, we asked this question of, you know, Canada, whether or not you agree with the idea that Canada is, is so small conter- compared to some of the other countries like China, the, India, the United States, that at the end of the day our efforts aren't really going to make a difference. And four in ten Canadians agree with that, and about 55% disagree and say that, you know, our, our actions are important regardless of, of the size of the nation. And, and, you know, we do admit a lot per capita. Um, but there is certainly a, a segment of the population that, that crosses all age groups and all gender uh, categories that, that say that, you know, ultimately I'm not sure that we can make the biggest difference, but... You know, Canadians certainly want to to try or or feel like they're trying at the very least on this issue. So, and why not cash into it from an industry perspective? Be the first to do it. I mean, I'm all for that. But again, uh, do we have to immediately park our car and start walking tomorrow in order to do that? Uh, something that's interesting too. Uh, asked which party is best to lead Canada on the climate issue. The Conservative Party, bolstered by its own loyal base, is viewed as best by 25%. About the same number give the advantage to the Green, 23%, while others divided between the incumbent Liberals at 18, New Democrats at 10, uh, uncertainty at 18. Your thoughts on that point? Yeah, you know, I thought it was interesting, particularly the way that that breaks down when you look at the partisanship on it. So um, the Greens, just by virtue of being the the party of the environment, they they get quite a bit of support from everybody. They get, you know, if you're voting NDP, 24% of them say that the the Greens would be best on it. Even 11% of CPC voters say that the Greens would be best. But uh, it, the the gap between the Conservatives and the Liberals, you know, seven in ten Conservatives say that their party is best, and that drops below six in ten for Liberals, who's uh, have, have really tried to sell themselves as the right party to lead on this because they're going to, you know, walk the line and, and walk that balance of promoting growth in, in Canada's industries and, and, and the economy more broadly while transitioning to a, a greener economy and, and, and cleaner energy. And just 57% of those who say that they're going to support the Liberals uh, say that they're best on the issue, and they only get 2% uh, from the NDP supporters and 1% from Green supporters. So if this is a top issue, 
especially for left of center voters, uh, the liberals uh, really need to sell more more people outside of their party and and even within their party that they're the the uh, the right one to lead on this. And this is this is one of the issues that we've seen that is top of mind for voters going in. Um, it's more than double the number who said it in in 2015. It was just 15 percent said it was a top issue for them, and it's up to 33 percent now, which is you know well above health care. So. They, they certainly need to, to shore up support on this issue um, if they're going to move voters from those left-of-center parties, which looks like at this point it's, it's going to be really integral if, if they are uh, hoping to get their, their majority back. And, and for the Conservatives, I think just taking into account that even you know, a considerable number of their supporters want some action on this file um, so they, they don't maybe have to be so black and white on it. They could say that there's, there's room for action here. Um, I think that would would certainly uh, persuade some people who might be on the fence as well. So uh, have the Liberals disappointed more on climate change than they have inspired? Um, I, th- I think in certain senses, yeah. I, we, we asked this question of whether or not you think they've done enough or if they've been, been doing too little on, on climate change. And for, for those, those NDP and Green voters, you know, 8 and 10 say, that uh, they've done too little to address climate change. So do you think they over? Do you think they oversold and underdelivered there? Uh, you know, I'm I'm not sure. I think that if you look at the shape of the economy and some of the things that have been done, there's an argument that that they've done a, a pretty good job in in getting the federal carbon price in. Um, you know, there's there's debates over what, how effective that'll be, but just getting it implemented and having you know, multiple jurisdictions adopt it. You know, despite the fact that. Ontario is, is, you know, still fighting it in court, and Saskatchewan is, is on board with them. I think that was a big win, and the fact that they've had uh, decent growth numbers over in the last quarter is, is a good position strictly from a campaign perspective. Um, but, you know, they, they certainly seem to have, have underperformed even among, you know, some of their supporters, for 42% of those who say they're going to they're going to vote for the liberals say that they actually haven't done enough to address climate change. So uh, I'm not sure what what exactly uh, people are looking for them to do. But I think when you look at the fact that you know we're on on pace to miss the 2030 emission reduction commitments by by quite a bit, I think that that has a a part to do with it. Just the fact that they have said that we're going to be making these these big sweeping changes and uh, not a lot has changed at this point. So uh, certainly some work to do there. And then, you know, conservatives are, are just basically saying that they've been doing way too much and <laughs> they need to lay off it. So that's that's the split between uh, the conservatives and then the, the liberal NDP and green supporters. Just you can you can look at the same set of actions and have wildly different opinions about whether enough or too much has been done. That's uh, the beauty of Canada. Uh, we only have about 30 seconds left. How much is the Green Party going to play a factor in this election? I, I think they're, you know, just based on the way that the issues are shaping up and the uh, the actions out in New Brunswick, which have been pretty startling, having, mm-hmm. I think it was 14 NDP candidates jump ship. Um, I think that they are filling a, a real big void here that where the NDP is, you know, is underfunded and it hasn't run as many candidates. They're only up to about 150 candidates right now with six weeks till the election. So I think the Greens are certainly uh, threatening to play a much bigger role, and especially out here in B.C. They may win, you know, four to six seats on the island. So that would give them a, a bigger space in the conversation. Um, so I think that's certainly something to watch and, and one of the things that we'll be interested in. As the campaign kicks off, or 
we're ready to go next week, I think. Dave Korzynski's been with us, Angus Reed Institute. Dave, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. No problem. Take care. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcasts or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.